Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak. I'm a certified financial planner practitioner, and in this show, I explain your money to you. We talk about current events economic news. We look at different financial planning topics, things that might be of interest, something that you could use in your personal life. And then finally, in the last section, I answer your questions. So if you have a question for me, go to my Facebook page, Ask Peggy, and submit it, and I will answer it on the show. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears market and economic update. And today I want to talk about the data for the month of May, as well as looking how we've been so far this year. So May was actually not a bad month. The Dow was up about 2%. The NASDAQ, which has been on a real tear this year, was up almost 5% at 4.99. The S&P 500 was up 2.87%. Now, with the markets going up, it's not surprising that gold is down a percent. And oil, in spite of the run that it made, it pulled back sharply at the very end of May, and it actually closed down 1.79%. So I like the idea of the monthly data because it gives us a better idea of what's going on. But I also think it's important to put it into the context of the year. And when you look at where the market's gone this year, it's quite a bit different from last year. It's been very flat. In fact, the Dow is flat for the year. That means there haven't been any gains. There haven't been any losses. It's less than a percentage point difference. Now, the NASDAQ is up 7.8% this year. Remember, it gained almost 5% in May. So most of the gain in the NASDAQ actually happened in May. The S&P 500 is up 1.18%. For the year, gold is down 1.4%. Oil has been a big winner this year, up 12%. And I've said it before, but as long as we have turbulence in the Middle East, I really think that oil will probably keep a higher level. You know, when all of that calms down, the oil may pull back a little bit. It actually did pull back in May, so it will be interesting to see where it goes from here. Now, remember, as I give you these numbers, they're estimates. When I'm putting together how much anything went up for the month or the year, there can be a little rounding error from the data on the first day, depending upon the time of day that I took it the last day. But this is not your official guide to market action. It's instead designed to give you a sense as to where the market's going and what's going on. Also, remember that even though the NASDAQ is up 7.8% this year, a big mistake people make in their portfolios is they see a sector and it's going up and so they put all their money into it and that inevitably gets us into trouble. Remember the dot-com crash of 2000? That was also very NASDAQ-driven. 
Now, the Nasdaq's much more stable today than it was in 2000. And a lot of the advances, I really think, are good, solid changes in technology. But I would remind you that a diversified portfolio is always going to be safer than putting all your eggs in any one basket, regardless of how appealing that basket is. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. In this week's legislative update, we have a lot of news, and it gets a little bit technical, but I want you to understand it because I want you to know what's going on. We're limited, really, on the action we can take on most of what I'm talking about because these are congressional decisions, but I still think it's important for you to know the steps that Congress is taking and what's going on with it. So if you remember back to the 2008 financial crisis, shortly after that ended in 2010, the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill passed. Now, it didn't pass by a lot, but it still passed, and it was designed to put things in place that would protect our financial system from the risks that it faced in 2008 by making requirements that they hadn't had before and by setting limits on the kinds of things they could do or requiring them to take certain activities. If you're interested in learning more about Dodd-Frank, I'd recommend that you go back and read the bill. I want to keep this easy because it's radio and I don't want to get so far into the weeds that it gets complicated. But on May 22nd, Congress approved a major Dodd-Frank rollback. So they undid some of the legislation. So basically what Dodd-Frank set up were stress tests for banks, where the banks had to be able to show how they would withstand financial pressure. Because remember, we lost several major banks. They just went under at financial institutions that had placed risky investments and done things, and they weren't well capitalized enough, meaning they didn't have enough money that wasn't at risk. So one of the things that Congress has just done is changed and required that banks' stress test now if they had, it used to be in the law, if they had $50 million or more, they had to stress test. Now it's 250, I'm sorry, billion with a B, not million with an M, billion with a B. So it's $250 billion instead of 50. So what that means is the smaller and medium-sized banks no longer have to undergo the stress tests. They no longer have to create something called a living will, where they show basically how they're going to get off life support. The problem is $250 billion is a lot of money. And it's basically exempted every financial institution except the 10 biggest in the country from this rule. And that puts a lot of intermediate financial institutions with no longer having the requirement to show that they could withstand a major stress to the financial system. There was some bipartisan support for this, 
but it still does put the financial institutions at more risk than they used to be at. Now, I know that small community banks were really struggling with trying to implement this, but the problem really isn't those banks. It's that giant swath in the middle where they have a lot of consumers' assets. Those banks are also exempted. We'll have to wait and see how this goes. One of the concerns that was raised by Sarah Bloom Raskin, who was Deputy um, Treasury Secretary under the Obama administration, and she said, you know, if this were the only thing that had happened, it might not really be quite as scary, but we're in such a major period of deregulation right now in everything, including financial services, that there's a good chance that this is putting consumers at risk in ways we're not even thinking about right now. A week after they changed the size of banks that had to stress test, Congress then attacked the Volcker Rule, named for uh, the former federal chairman, Paul Volcker. The Volcker Rule is actually part of Dodd-Frank, but it's a different part of it. And the Volcker Rule was concerned with speculative trading that banks were doing with the money that they hold. Because remember, that's how banks can pay you, pay you interest. They do things with the money. And one of the things that they do is invest. And some of the investments prior to 2008 got very complicated, very risky, even somewhat looking like a hedge sometimes where they're trying to take the other side of a trade, it still were, they were very risky trades. And so part of trying to make sure that 2008 doesn't happen again is the Volcker Rule. And it said that banks had to justify the trades that they were making. And it says that the trade needs to serve a clear purpose that is outside of just a speculative bet. So it's either trying to meet a customer demand or it's acting as a hedge against a specific risk. And by doing this, it curtailed a lot of the trading in assets like derivatives, think um, option contracts. In this case, they were more likely to be swaps. They were all kinds of those really funky investments that most of us will never own in our entire life. Corporate bonds, when the corporation underlying the bond is on really uncertain financial footing, those bonds can be very risky. If the issuer of the bond can't pay the loan back, remember bonds are loans, then the entire bond issue can go belly up. So if you make somebody a loan and they don't pay you back, you're taking a lot of risk. And then finally, there were just other really strange investment products that the banks were investing in. And so what the Volcker Rule said, they didn't say they couldn't do it. They said that you had to justify every trade and explain why that trade was being made. And simply speculating for making money for the banks was not a good enough reason. Now, the rule has been modified, and rather than now looking at each individual trade, instead a system 
is set up, where the trading activity, basically think of it as an investment policy statement. And there's people within the banks who are supposed to oversee to make sure that the banks are following the investment policy statement that they're setting up. This IPS has to comply, but there's no longer the checking on a trade-by-trade basis to see whether or not the banks are doing what they say they are. So now, theoretically, this should work because the trades weren't really being looked at that closely in the first place. Even with the Volcker rule in place, the regulators weren't inclined to go in and micromanage the banks. So you would think that if the trades weren't being looked at in the first place, now you have an investment policy statement that has to be issued that's probably easier to read and regulate. And then you put people inside of the banks to make sure that that policy statement is followed. In a perfect world, this probably does work. And Paul Volcker himself said that if this is implemented the right way, then everything should be just fine. Of course, the concern is what happens inside of the financial institutions. Does the person who is supposed to oversee the activity actually oversee it, Or are they more complicit in the speculative activity that got the banks and the financial institutions into trouble in the first place? So we're really going to have to wait and see how this plays out. The biggest problem that we have is now that the trades aren't being looked at, what we have to do is take the word of the financial institutions for saying, don't worry, we're doing everything right which is what they said prior to 2008. So there's a lot of people really concerned about this, really worried that in a period of complete deregulation of everything, if Congress and the president and some um, higher financial people can figure out how to do it, that the end result of this, although it might be good, it might not be good, It's important to watch the space, really pay attention. Certainly as I learn more, I will share it with you. So my final piece of legislative news is simply personal. I am part of the Financial Planning Association, and I'm very active in their advocacy efforts. Now, what's the difference between an advocate and a lobbyist? Lobbyists get paid. Advocates go on their own dime. So there is always a group of us that goes to Washington, D.C. every year. This is my third year to go. We meet with Congress. We meet with senators. We go to the offices in our home districts, and we talk about fair financial practices for consumers, along with other issues that FPA wants to talk to um, Washington, D.C. about. But the biggest push of these is always advocating for consumers. And what we're going to do this week, I leave tomorrow, I'm taping this on Monday, and I'm actually in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill on Thursday, is we're talking about the new SEC proposed best interest package. And I've talked a little bit about that on previous shows. Basically, what the Financial Planning Association is saying to the lawmakers is the SEC rule 
is good as far as it goes, but it falls short of actually offering the fiduciary level protection that we believe that consumers have the right to expect. You have the right to expect that the person you give your life savings to is going to be acting in your best interest as much as they can, rather than their best interest. Because let's face it, investing and dealing with financial stuff is tough on the best of days, you want your financial professional to be sitting there with you, helping you, acting in your best interest. It increases the likelihood of your financial success so much. It creates such a better relationship between the financial services person and the consumer. We are really pleased with the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards recent statement on the mandatory fiduciary standard for anyone who uses the CFP marks whenever they're dealing with a consumer. So this means if you're dealing with a certified financial planner practitioner, the CFP board says that person has to act as your fiduciary because they're using the marks. And we'd very much like to see the SEC come up with a rule like this. So I'm going to be meeting with everyone from Oklahoma. I'll be in Senator Inhofe's office. I'll be in Senator Langford's office. I'll be in Representative Cole's office. And then I'll be in offices of adjoining states as well because we go in groups. It's really fun, and I will tell you more about it as soon as I'm back. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. This is the Plan Your Prosperity section, and after... All of that news in the last section about legislation that we really can't control, I'd like to give you a little bit of control of your financial life back in this section and give you some strategies if you're trying to determine what your risk tolerance level is, or even on top of that, once you know your risk tolerance level, what do you do with it? I see this a lot with people with their company retirement plans. You know how it works. You go to a meeting and there's free pizza and Coke and somebody from your 401k plan from the financial firm is there and they go through a batch of PowerPoint slides. They explain everything to you. They give you your options. Maybe they talk a little fast. Maybe they use words you don't know, but you really hate to say that because everybody else is just kind of smiling and nodding. And what you may not know is everybody's smiling and nodding because nobody really understands what was just said. So let's talk a little bit about what you do when you've completed the risk tolerance form that I'm sure you got with that company plan. And I, I'm talking specifically about company plans here. It would be the same situation if you had an investment account and you were making the investment choices. Because what I discover is that when people determine they're moderately aggressive, they don't have any idea what to do with that. So basically, your risk tolerance comes into four or five categories. Maybe you're aggressive or you're moderately aggressive or you're moderate, or you're moderately conservative, or you're conservative, well, the ends are pretty easy to understand. If you're aggressive, you're really going for growth. If you're conservative, you're really afraid of losing money. 
So speaking in generalities, I'm kind of doing a little bit of textbook talking right now because in any situation, these rules might not work. But generally, if you are wanting to be aggressive, you're wanting to be in the stock market. And you're wanting to select funds, probably mutual funds or exchange-traded funds that track stocks. Maybe they're American stocks, maybe they're international stocks, maybe it's a sector. But you're looking for stock funds. And the more aggressive you are, the more stock funds you're probably seeking. Now, different stock funds have different levels of risk. So an international fund is generally going to be more risky than an American fund. A sector fund is going to be more risky than a broad market fund because if something goes wrong in the sector, then you have an issue with it. If you're conservative, you're probably looking for bond funds. And again, there's times that this can be tricky, especially if interest rates are going up. But the more conservative you are, likely the less stock you own, and you're going to fo focus on bond funds. Even in bond funds, there's different levels of risk. You can have um, American government bond funds. American government bond funds are pretty stable. American corporate funds have more risk because it's debt issued by corporations rather than the government. A high-yield bond fund is issued by a corporation that doesn't have a great balance sheet, so they have to pay a little bit more interest. So they're probably going to be a little bit riskier than an American um, government bond fund. International bond funds tend to be a little bit riskier. Emerging market bond funds are a little bit riskier than developed international funds. So when you think it through, it's relatively easy. If you think that domestic is typically a little bit safer, big, broad pieces of a market are safer than sectors, big companies are safer than small companies, it's easy to begin to see how all of these things work together. So even if you're aggressive, you probably wouldn't want all international emerging markets. You probably want a lot of stock, but you want to diversify. If you're conservative and you're needing any yield, you might not want nothing but American government bond funds because they don't pay very much. So aggressive is lots of stock. Conservative is lots of bond. Moderately aggressive is going to be weighted more towards stock than bond. So you'll have a higher percentage of stocks than bonds. And moderately conservative, you'll have a higher percentage of bonds than stocks. If you're moderate, it could be 50-50. Now, there's a million things that interact this on not a textbook level. So I would encourage you to ask lots of questions about that financial guy who comes from your 401k plan or gal, or work with a certified financial planner practitioner. Never, ever invest in something you don't understand. If you don't understand an investment, you should either avoid it or really set about to learn about it, to understand it, so you know what you own, you know what risks you're taking, and then try to put together a portfolio that matches that risk tolerance number that you came up with. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. 
So welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this week, my question comes from Ginger. And she says, Peggy, I need to save money, but it's just so hard to get started. What are some easy ways to begin? And I really think that Ginger's question is is so important, and it's so hard to actually start getting your finances under control. Once you kind of begin to make some dents into it, it gets a lot easier. But maybe you've got credit card debt. Maybe you don't have any money in savings. Maybe you don't have anything saved for retirement. When you look at all of it, it gets incredibly overwhelming. And so typically when we get overwhelmed, what we do is we don't do anything. And then we think about it in six months, and then we're even more depressed because we realize we haven't done anything to fix it. So I'm going to give you some some tips and some strategies that you can use to break this down into little pieces so it won't be so overwhelming for you. The first thing you need to do is track your spending. I absolutely believe that your spending is the key to creating a financial plan that works for you. Because what you need to look at is where is the money going? And if the money is going just for basic bills and you're still getting in the hole, then you need to cut some of those basic bills or you need to find a way to earn more money. Usually the basic bills are paid for and it's the discretionary spending that kills us. And so what we find out is we eat out entirely more than we ever believed possible. You know, when I changed from a corporate trainer to finance, I went from a job that paid me a paycheck to basically not having any clients yet, so we didn't have much income coming from me. I tracked our spending to make sure that my husband and I could live on just his salary before I got the bright idea of opening a business that didn't have any customers yet. So tracking spending is not a sign of shame. Everyone has to do it. Once you know what you're spending, you can look for things to cut out. If you want to buy something and you know that you really shouldn't buy it, maybe you have enough money, but you probably shouldn't go ahead and spend it on it, I want you to leave the store. I want you to get in your car and I want you to drive home. If you can't get the item out of your mind, and you do have the money that's there, you can go back and get it. But if you have to drive back to the store before you let your you before you let yourself buy that thing you don't really need, it will cut out the impulse purchase. And you won't be deprived because remember, I haven't told you you can't have it. I've just told you you can't have it today. Avoid mindless spending. Go in with a plan, go with a list, have something in mind, and then try to stay to it because it's when we just randomly start spending money and we're not paying any attention is when we get in the most trouble. Bring your lunch a couple of days to work. I know people kind of laugh at some of my small dollar suggestions, but if you can save $20 a week just by bringing your lunch twice, It saves a lot of money at the end of the day. In that same way, get a coffee pot for the office, even a really nice coffee pot, and then buy nice coffee because it will be cheaper than going out to your favorite coffee store every day. Save your change. When you get change back, put it in a jar. 
clip coupons from the paper or go onto websites or sign up. Different stores will send you coupons via email and text. Maybe use cash for small purchases rather than putting it on the card. So give yourself X number of dollars a week cash for your pocket money, and then don't spend more than that because when you whip out the card, it's very easy to spend entirely more money than you thought you did, and you get yourself in trouble. Not even really knowing you're doing it because well, it's just this, it's just that. But at the end of the month, it adds up. Then remember, try to save a small amount of money first. You can't save for your retirement next month, but maybe you could actually spend less than you earned, which would be a great first step, and then try to save a hundred dollars. If that's overwhelming, try to save twenty dollars. I don't want you to think that because you can only save ten, fifteen, twenty dollars, that it's not worth doing. It is. It will add up. It will make a difference, and it will start to change behaviors. Well, that's it for this week. I can't believe how fast this show goes. I really appreciate that you listen. Remember, if you have a question, go to Ask Peggy on Facebook. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma KVOY 104.5 FM for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money. <laughs>